Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hogg. My guest today is Frank de Cotter. Frank is Chair Professor of Humanities at the University of Hong Kong and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute. He is probably our leading historian of Mao's China. And in fact, it was Mao's China we talked about when Frank was on the show a few months ago. But today we're going to talk about his book, Dictators, The Cult of Personality in the 20th Century. So welcome back, Frank, to the podcast. Thank you for having me again. And you start your book with uh, that quite famous quote from Machiavelli to the effect that if that if a ruler has to choose, then it's better to be feared than loved. And can you just unpick that a bit for us? Well, yeah, as, as you know, Machiavelli then explains why. And he says, more elegantly than I can do it right now, that when the people love you, they will abandon you the moment things go pear-shaped. But if you instill fear, they will remain loyal, even when things go pear-shaped. But in your book, the subtitle of which is The Cult of Personality, it almost seems like it's the reverse of this, which is that the leader, the dictator, they want to be loved. No, they don't want to be loved. They want to be feared. So I understand, <laughs> I understand your question. So the key point, there's several key points here. So this could take a little bit of time. Um, but the major mistake is uh, there are several major mistakes we tend to make when it comes to discussing dictators in the 20th century. And, and one is to assume that a cult of personality um, is something reasonably positive. It's expressing, expressing admiration. Images of, you know, the, the Hitler youth parading through the streets of Munich or red guards assembled in Beijing and brandishing the little red book or, or people acclaiming Stalin on, on Red Square in Moscow. Um, but that's not the case. A cult of personality, as we will see further, is, is really there to instill fear in every single person. So we think of a cult of personality as, as, as a love, when in, in effect is the exact opposite. And then the other mistake we tend to make is to think of dictators as people who mainly use repression in the shape of the gulag, prisons, camps, interrogators, torturers, secret police, to instill fear. But here is a very simple calculation. You cannot put a policeman behind every single person. So a dictator can run a country with the secret police and camps and fear, but is much more effective uh, if he can instill fear in the heart of each and every individual. In other words, you can police the streets, but ultimately you must police the mind of every single person. And that is why I think the cult of personality is so extraordinarily important, despite the fact that it has been overlooked so, so often. It is somehow you know, frequently dismissed as something um, slightly slightly bizarre, if not macabre, to see these misguided people acclaim the very person 
who herds them down the road to serve them. So what is the cult of personality? Well, it, 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 it is an answer to a paradox that the dictator faces. And the paradox is that he must be acclaimed by all, although very obviously he has not been elected by all. In other words, he must create the impression that he is acclaimed by his people, even though these people never had a chance to vote for him. A dictator, by definition, is somebody who dictates, is somebody who seizes power, who doesn't want to go through the democratic process. He can rig the elections, he can organize a coup, he can stab somebody in the back or in the face, as the case may be. But in all instances, uh, he uses violence, direct or indirect, to uh, get to power. From there onwards, he faces several problems. One problem is that violence uh, creates violence. Uh, power seized through violence must be maintained by more violence. But as I explained earlier on, that violence can exhaust itself, can be very time-consuming. Uh, so it is a dictator must instill fear in the people around them and in the population at large to avoid the very fate he has inflicted on others. If the dictator is willing to use violence to seize power, others must be willing to do it against him, who is constantly on his guard, is constantly watching his back. So he's got two issues here. One is the very people around him, the people who are closest to him, number two, number three, number four, are the ones who might, who might be in the best position to organize a coup. So here, again, the cult of personality comes in very, very effectively because what it does is that it forces all around the man. It is always a man, never a woman, not, not, not yet. We're not there yet. That <laughs> All those around the man in charge um, try to find out what others think. And when they are forced to acclaim the dictator, uh, they are turned into liars. And when people lie, it becomes very difficult to find out who thinks what. In other words, through the cult of personality, the dictator forces both friends and enemies, foes and friends, to lie together and create a situation in which nobody realizes what others think. Think, making it very difficult to organize a coup. Is my next friend genuine in acclaiming Adolf Hitler or applauding Chairman Mao? Or is he merely putting up a show? It's very difficult to know. And I'm not sure I want to find out because he might denounce me. So this is the other effect of a cult of personality, that people start watching each other. And not just the immediate entourage of the dictator, but people at large. They are compelled uh, in their daily lives frequently, not, not, all, not always, but certainly under Stalin, uh, to a great extent under Hitler, under Kim Il-sung, other dictators. They must acclaim their dictator. They must show their loyalty by, for instance, bowing to his portrait under Mao or reciting his work in North Korea um, or, or, or other forms of worship. So what happens 
is that if an ordinary person does not follow suit, fails to bow to the portrait, fails to acclaim the person in, in a meeting held in a school, in a factory, in an office, um, then that person will be denounced. And once you see others being denounced and hauled away to prison, possibly to the Gulag or the Northern Wilderness in the case of the People's Republic, uh, you start monitoring your own thoughts. You monitor your own thoughts, those of the people close to you, even your own children, making sure they never ever say anything that might go against the great man himself. In other words, the cult of personality within a very short time can create the perfect illusion of popular acclaim for the man who is paradoxically detested by so many. And so this is sort of a scrambling of communications, where before you might be able to hear messages loud and clear from one person to another, the dictator has somehow managed to cut to cut the telephone line that they had. Your book is something about, I can't remember the subtitle now, but it's something about the cult of personality in the 20th century. Do you think that that form of dictatorship and the cult of personality belongs in a certain age? And that now we have different forms of communication, that technique of the cult of personality doesn't work so well. Yes and no. So first of all, what exactly is a dictator? There are so many, um, there's so much confusion about this. Um, to me, again, rather paradoxically, the dictator uh, lives in an age of democracy. What I'm trying to say by this is that Dictators belong to the modern age. Before the French Revolution, or if you wish the American Revolution, but I think the French Revolution really states the principles very clearly in 1789. Uh, before the French Revolution, power is not vested in the people. Power is vested by gods or by heaven, in, in the case of, 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 of China. Uh, into an emperor or a king. That's where the legitimacy comes from. There's no, there's no, no need, no desire for any king, any sovereign, any emperor, anywhere before 1789 to appeal to the populace. They're merely subjects. But the French Revolution changes that by vesting sovereignty into the people. So from there onwards, what you get from 1789 to this very day, you, you get a very interesting political uh, dynamic. You get a move towards allowing the people to vote. So, of course, initially, it's only a certain portion of the population. Uh, the very gradually, it's a larger proportion of the male vote than it's the female vote, and on and on it goes. But with that comes something else also clearly pointed out during the French Revolution, namely the principle of the separation of powers, checks and balances, opposing parties, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, uh, a whole panoply of measures to make sure that power is always divided. So that is a truly modern principle, which you will not find anywhere around planet Earth before 1789. So what I'm trying to say here is that if you look at the broad 20th century, you will see that it's divided precisely into two very different drives, two very different motivations, two very different processes. One is to continue the separation of powers, to increase the checks and balances, to constantly fine-tune 
this democratic system. And the other one is the exact opposite. It's not to have separation of powers, but to have a monopoly of a power. That's exactly what Lenin does. So first we're talking about 1789, French Revolution. Now we're talking about the Russian Revolution, 1917. Lenin is the very first one to very clearly enunciate a whole different principle, namely that in order to bring forward a revolution, there must be a disciplined party that seizes power and has a monopoly over power in order to carry out that gigantic task of transforming the world according to the principles of the revolution. In, in the case of Lenin, is of course, an artist revolution. Um, so what you have here is regimes that follow a monopoly over power, North Korea, PLC to this day, and those that follow separation of powers. So in that sense, a dictator can only belong to the 20th century. And in that sense, a dictator being part of this world shaped by democracy, oddly enough, claims to be democratic. <laughs> it's not for nothing that Hitler has plebiscites. He wants to show that despite the fact that he was never elected, 99.8% of the people acclaim him. Same story with you know, other dictators. So that principle is, is very clear. Now, do dictators change over time? Do dictatorships as a system change with, as you said, advancing technologies? I would say, no, not really. The technologies change, but dictators are very good at, at using them. It isn't just Hitler, but before him, Mussolini, who really captures the radio, uh, makes sure that there are um, loudspeakers on public squares uh, in Italy uh, where he can proclaim his, his message and, of course, his voice. Radios in fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, are made available below cost of production, a principle which is also followed elsewhere, including, of course, the Soviet Union and also the People's Republic uh, later on in the 50s and 60s. Make sure that people can hear uh, the party and, of course, the main voice of the party, in other words, the dictator. And so dictatorships are very good at using new technologies. But the unchanging principle is one of loyalty. So let me explain this a little bit further. Ideologies can change when we talk about Marxism. What Marxism are we talking about? Is it the Marxism of Lenin, of Stalin, of Khrushchev, of Mao, of Deng Xiaoping, of Xi Jinping? All of this changes. Kim Il-sung in 1972 enshrines his own thought in the constitution, North Korea, and makes sure that the very classics of Marx and Engels are no longer available. In, in other words, <laughs> in North Korea from 1972 onwards, you have a, a Marxist state in which you cannot read Marx. <laughs> so, in other words, what I'm, what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to say that ideology changes all the time. One is a Stalinist and the Stalin, and a Maoist and the Mao, and a Kimist and the Kim Il-sung, and a Xi Jinpingist and the Xi Jinping. You must study the thoughts of the man, and his thoughts may change over time, so you better pay attention. But the key point really is that while ideology changes, loyalty is the key principle. You must be loyal and demonstrate lo your loyalty through the cult of personality. 
But Stalin may contradict himself from year to year. Mao may change his views, but you shouldn't be bothered by that. You, you should acclaim him, whatever he says, and whatever happens. So loyalty here is a key principle. That remains very much you know, a key value throughout all of these dictatorships. But the paradox here, again, a lot of paradoxes, was the paradoxes, since there is a cult of personality, since loyalty is such a key value, but also since everybody has become a liar, nobody really knows whether the loyalty is sincere or not. Under Stalin, you must, of course, acclaim the man, read his work, but if you go over, over the top, if you start being too enthusiastic, that looks insincere and is equally dangerous. But you must have the exact right measure of acclaim, the right words at the right time, in the right manner, in order to convince your audience, obviously not the dictator himself, he, he's busy killing people mainly, <laughs> you must be able to convince others that you are quite sincere in your acclaim of your leader. But the dictator knows. He's no fool. He knows that the result of the cult of personality may be superficial uh, uniformity and acclaim. But all these problems are now hidden. In other words, people pretend to be loyal, but are they really loyal? That, that's the real difficulty here. The dictator is surrounded by sycophants, by liars, by people who acclaim him, but he no longer trusts anyone, meaning that the dictator increasingly, as time goes by, starts making all major decisions by himself. Hitler doesn't really trust his generals. He will run the war. Didn't go too well. <laughs> <laughs> but this is but this is one of the big problems, isn't it? That yes. they have is that is that if they can't trust anyone, well, it's not just that they can't trust anyone, but nobody will tell them the truth when something is going wrong. Exactly. And I'm thinking of Mao's China. And I don't know how much Mao knew about how much the uh, the Great Leap Forward was a huge failure, and to what extent he didn't care. I mean, do you have a sense of that? Oh, he knew perfectly well. This is one of the great myths of, of the sympathizers of the People's Republic of China, that the great man was somehow misled by his underlings who fed him reports about how everything uh, was going so well and, and, and what a great success the Great Leap Forward was. All these reports, of course, existed. What else would you want to do? If you do not produce a good report, you'll get the sack, or worse, you get the porters. But you've got to remember, every dictator is in charge of a huge machinery, starting from Lenin onwards. And that huge machinery is there to make sure that the dictator actually knows what is happening on the ground. Mm. In other words, if you, if you wish to summarize the flow of paperwork in the dictatorship, there is stuff that goes up from the underling to his superior, in which the underling says, oh, we are very close to creating paradise on earth. Every quota has been fulfilled and overfulfilled. <laughs> in other words, people lie up, but then every superior 
occasionally must find out what is really happening here or there, and will then send a delegation down to investigate, find out what is really, really happening. And that machinery is incredibly powerful uh, when it is in the hands of the leader himself, secret services, secret police, secretaries sent out to find out what is going on, henchmen, spies, you name it. So if there's anyone who is very well informed, then is the man at the very top. He has got all the information that he knows exactly what is going on. But of course, that doesn't mean he wishes to acknowledge it. Most of all, he must blame it on others. Mm-hmm. I uh, I had somebody on, I had Katja Hoyer on to talk about East Germany, and she said one of the functions of the Stasi uh, was, you know, to find out what was actually going on and report that back up back up to the party leaders, so they so they actually knew what people were really thinking. You know, it wasn't just to repress them; it was to actually get some sort of flow of actual information they could trust back up. Exactly. So it's a sort of paranoid world in which people smile and will say what is required, yet on the other hand, may think the exact opposite. In in the parlance of the Cultural Revolution, people raise the red flag to fight the red flag. That's the danger for a dictator. You say it's the danger for the dictator, but all your dictators, well, I mean, the tide went out on a few of them. But if you take Ceausescu, for example, who ends up being uh, shot, shot against the toilet block, yeah, shot against the toilet block, not a great end. No, but it wasn't to some extent his fault that that happened. It was that the the tide went out on communism, and Gorbachev basically said, "I'm washing my hands of you," and and that was that was the end of the uh, of you know the East European communist dictatorships. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't something that Ceausescu had done that was wrong. Or if you take take Hitler, his people kept fighting the war. They may not have. They may not have loved the man, or maybe they did love the man. But they kept going right to the bitter end. And it was the fact that he lost the war that lost him his position, not because there was some internal revolt. So I, I was just struck by how few dictatorships seem to be ended. Certainly the ones in your book seem to be ended by some sort of an internal coup or revolt. Well, that, that's exactly um, you know what I pointed out in the beginning. <laughs> the biggest fear that will haunt any dictator is that someone might do to him what he did to others in order to seize power. Well, that's, that's the greatest fear. Well, if you check out the word coup in your dictionary or on Wikipedia, you'll find out there are a great many of them. So, yes, there are a great many unsung dictators, people who, who didn't make it beyond a day or a week or a month. Um, that is very, very true. Um, so my selection, and there's really what you want to avoid, I think, is a typology. Well, sometimes people ask me, you know, I picked eight dictators. They ask me, oh, but you got four, five who are communists and only four who were on the right. <laughs> My answer is there's no left and there's no right. It's a monopoly of the power. Uh, Mussolini started out on the left and remained a socialist to a great extent. To, to, to a great extent. National socialism as socialism in the title. Uh, Kim Il-sung is a Marxist, but you can't find Marx. <laughs> on and on it goes. It's about a monopoly over power. That, that's what matters. It's about making sure that the party controls 
every institution in your country, and that there's no other party or institution outside of the party. That's that's the key task. Um, so why why eight? What you want to point out, I think, is not so much a typology of dictators, the ones that succeed versus the ones who fail, but really how there is diversity within uniformity. So the, 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 the fear matters, the, the techniques used by the dictators matter, uh, the emphasis on loyalty is a constant, uh, although many common features, yet the personality of the dictator does not, I'm not talking about the color personality, I'm just <laughs> talking about how these individuals vary, uh, their personality varies greatly from one case to the other, uh, which resists any attempt to put them in little pigeonholes, typology. You must see them as individuals. And not only that, you must see them in the case of people who succeed. By succeed, I mean you die in your bed or you die in a pool of urine like Stalin, but at a reasonably mature age. That I call success. Um, if you pick the reasonably successful ones, um, you must also acknowledge that these dictators are um, very gifted individuals. So this is something that goes against the grain. And I don't think this started with Charlie Chaplin and the way he mocked Hitler already when Hitler was alive, there were American reporters who would come to see him in the early 1930s, then go back home and mock him as a very little man. And when Goebbels would tell him about it, Hitler would actually be quite pleased. <laughs> he said, well, let's just see what this very little man is going to do. In other words, <laughs> first of all, Hitler was a great actor. He prided himself on being Europe's best performer. He could fool people, make them think what he wanted them to think. He's also a great orator, great designer. He's a hands-on man. These are people, all of them, who have one very special gift, which I don't have, and I hope you don't have, which is an utter and complete lack of empathy. In other words, if you're going to be a dictator, you're going to build your career on the bodies of a great many other people. So if you lose sleep over that, this is not a career that is cut out for you. So they, they have what I call gifts, although you and I may not consider them to be, if you wish, positive gifts. But, but they work very hard at it. It's a, it's a bloody hard job to be a dictator. I was interested, you said, that they that they lack empathy, and yet, although they lack empathy, you also made the point you need to. They needed to understand human nature in order to manipulate humans. So it's this strange mixture of lack of empathy on the one hand, and then sort of insight into into humanity on the other. It's it's a strange mix. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. They excel. I think they excel. In many cases, in, including Hitler, they, Hitler took pride in his ability to read 
a person within 10 seconds flat. And some of his closest observers said the same thing. He was able to judge a person in no time and then more or less decide, this is going to be someone I can trust who will help me, or this is somebody I don't trust and I will just use him and throw him away when the time comes. But many of them had that sort of, maybe this sounds a bit derogatory towards people who live in the countryside, but that sort of peasant instinct Hmm. for who poses a threat potentially and who is not. That ability to assess someone very, very quickly. They excel at corridor politics. They know how to divide and rule, pit people against each other, gain people's trust, turn them against each other, read them, in which case, of course, empathy is absolutely fundamental. The ability to think what others might think or feel what others might feel. Yet on the other hand, also a complete lack of empathy when it comes to feeling pain. (laughs) Stalin quite happily changing the sentences of people sent to the gulag from five years to eight years. It's, It's just takes them a few seconds to change the number five to the number eight. And, and, and that prolongs the agony for hundreds of thousands of convicts. And it's the same with the good old chairman, Chairman Mao. He knows exactly what is going on. He doesn't really feel hunger at all. He's very well fed. Does it bother him? No, not really. Not really. Doesn't, he, doesn't lose any sleep. He loses sleep when he smells a rat when he thinks there's something happening against him. Mm. And you mentioned how dictators are, well, well, actually, there's one question I wanted to ask. Um, The great literary work on dictatorship is George Orwell's 1984. And I get the feeling you don't quite buy it. You, because George Orwell, sort of the last line of the book, is and he loved Big Brother, and it's a so he's now become a sincere convert to Big Brother. Mm. It's you know the, you know they 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 torture him and torture him and torture him until he can take no more, but he becomes a zealous convert and a believer. And I think your thesis is that we have no idea really who was a believer a true believer and who was simply going through the motions. And I think you indicate that you suspect that most people were not. Uh, I think, you know, for example, you mentioned, I think I have this right, that that a few weeks after Stalin's death, his name doesn't appear in the, in the newspapers anymore. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it, people switched off almost immediately. There might've been great weeping at the funeral or whatever, but then it's gone and it's forgotten. So I just wondered, do you think George Orwell got it right or do you think he uh, I think he missed something? Well, you put your, fo- your finger on it. I think there's only one honest answer, and that is that if we are talking about a dictatorship, then we simply don't know what people believe. Number two doesn't really know what number one thinks, would like to, and number one doesn't really know what number two thinks, and three and four and five. Nobody really knows what anyone really thinks. I might not even know what my wife thinks. Well, 
that's a fact, but I mean in a dictatorship. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, yeah. might, you might really not know what you don't, don't know how your marriage is, perhaps that's exactly how it's run. <laughs> I love my wife to bits. She's a dictator, but I love her to bits. Now, the point really is that mm, people are people. So, of course, it's going to vary enormously. As much as Adolf Hitler thought of himself as a great actor, and Mussolini, by the way, Mussolini was very keen on his image as a, as a great actor, a man who could really act on, on a world stage. But of course, every person, to some extent, becomes an actor. You can see this, for instance, in memoirs of the Cultural Revolution in China, when people remember that they had to denounce someone. So they would just jump up, denounce a friend, a neighbor, a family member, and let's go back to business. And everybody understood perfectly well that this was nothing but an act, a ritual that was required. Now, of course, there are many different situations there too, where people really do ferociously denounce somebody and really truly believe it. So if you wish a, a great collection of certainly within the party of thugs, true believers, and opportunists, and the population at large, all the variety you might expect uh, from humanity, uh, from people who are skeptical from the very, very beginning, to people who just believe it, and may believe it truly, profoundly, all along, and really weep when Adolf Hitler dies or Stalin dies. Although, again, if you read the memoirs, the moment Hitler's death is announced over the radio, nobody could see a tear anywhere. Nobody cried. Nobody felt sorry. Stalin, too, as you pointed out, name vanishes within months. So that's the only truth that we simply do not know. But nonetheless, I would suggest that it varies, of course, over time. Uh, but I'd be very surprised if more than 20, 30 percent of the population truly goes along with all this nonsense. One of the things I was, I just don't know enough history to understand, but you've got a very religious country, at least what I believe to be a very religious country like Italy. And I guess Germany, in my, in my mind's eye anyway, is a religious country. And I just wondered to what degree would the Catholic Church or Catholic religion sort of resist uh, the likes of Mussolini because you know the whole idea of a dictatorship is that you're totalitarian, is that you 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 take control of all the institutions, the party sort of dominates all the institutions, the clubs, you know everything. But there's there's religion sitting there, uh, and it's not so easy to take that over. So. Do you have a sort of sense of how of how religion and dictatorships how they how they mixed in countries that were extremely religious, like I assume uh, Italy in the in the twentieth century? All, all these countries are religious, wherever you go. I mean, what could be more religious than than a Russian living in the countryside round about the time that Lenin seizes power, nineteen seventeen? Right. The same for the countryside, of course, in. In, in North Korea, or, or the, the, what will become the People's Republic of China, may, maybe not one religion, but Buddhism, Taoism, Christianity, local deities, uh, you, you name it. But in all of these cases, and in the case of, of course, the Soviet Union, very, very quickly, 
all of these organizations are, um, if you wish, either incorporated or, or eliminated altogether very quickly. I think in, you, you mentioned Mussolini. As, 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 as we know, there was some attempt by the church to resist in the case of Adolf Hitler, but it didn't last all that long. In the case of Mussolini, it's slightly different in that he was a dictator by my own very definition, a monopoly over power, but it wasn't exactly a complete monopoly. And Hitler pointed this out to him. He said, you're making a big mistake. And the two things that were missing. One, there's still royalty whose face is on the stamp. Mm. It's not Mussolini. It's not, it's, not, it's not him. It's the king. And it's the king who places him under arrest. And then there's the church, and not just the Vatican, but the overall, the church. It's very powerful in the case of Italy. So Mussolini's solution is to really transform fascism into a sort of everyday religion. In the sense that it's very easy to become fascists. It becomes so easy, there's almost something that everybody does and everybody has. It's not difficult. So by opening up membership to the fascist party, you can absorb so much of the religious influence that it's no longer a great threat to him. Still, it will end badly for him, as you know, hanging upside down from a girder that doesn't look too good. But there's something else that happens with religion, which is extremely interesting. And again, it has to do with the cult of personality. Uh, and this is the case in particular with um, Marxist-Leninist countries. In other words, uh, Soviet Union, North Korea, People's Republic of China. Is that you got to ask yourself um, how conversants are largely agrarian and illiterate populations with the theoretical foundations <laughs> of Marxism. How conversant are they with dialectical materialism? Quite frankly, I still don't quite understand it. So the point really is that in order for a cult of personality to be effective, it must appeal to the people. And most of all, when Marxism-Leninism is so incomprehensible, the cult of personality offers something far more straightforward than ideology. It offers a person, an image. Mussolini cultivates his religious image as ideas go around about him having you know, the healing touch when people travel all the way to Rome just to be touched by him. But images of him as a saint circulate. Same a little bit with, with Hitler when you think about it, a messiah who came from above. You remember that he did a flying tour of Germany before the elections in 1933, descending literally in his airplane from the skies. Uh, and of course, Stalin, the father, the father of the people, with his iconography that is very similar to the iconography of the church. <laughs> When, of course, people at home have a little red corner, which they used to have under the Orthodox Church, they now have a little red corner, except the red means communism, and the icon on there is an image of Stalin. So very, very interesting, I think, that, that manner in which the cult of personality thrives 
on pre-existing popular religions. And of course, there's another reason for that, is that the cult of personality is supposed to come from below, even though it is imposed from above. Entire ministries work at that. Whole, whole industries churning out statues and portraits and what have you. But it must create the illusion that it comes from below, from the hearts of ordinary people. Hence, it acquires all these religious overtones. In the case of Haiti, Papa Doc Duvalier uh, very, very consciously uh, plays on the image of him being in touch with otherworldly powers. In, in other words, voodoo witchcraft. It enhances his aura, much like the aura of Mussolini is enhanced by the, that image of a healing touch. I was very taken by uh, the story you tell of how Haile Selassie, his body is buried underneath the office of uh, Meng Mengistu. And this seems an incredibly non well, I don't know, is, is Haile Selassie supposed to be the saint? Uh, is, 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 is this the image? Or I mean, it seemed almost like a voodoo thing, but, uh, but, but this is a Christian country. Yes, I, I think in this particular case, it there may not be much of a religious uh, connotation there. Oh, I see. Just, just plain cruel. <laughs> and, <laughs> and wanted to bury his opponent right underneath his feet. And I think that's all there was to it. Yeah, so we're going to bury you had a, had a, had a literal meaning in that particular yes. case. Yeah, apparently he suffocated, he suffocated the emperor himself with a pillow. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. That's always the rumor in these situations. I think Tiberius was supposed to have been smothered to death by Caligula, and uh, <laughs> you know, that's always that's always the rumor that goes around. Yes. So, just sort of bring it slightly, maybe bring it bring it slightly to an end. What about dictatorship today? You know, it just feels to me like dictators aren't what they used to be. Um, I mean, Putin just about qualifies as a dictator i think um you can certainly i mean particularly with the war in ukraine now you know the tolerance for dissent has you know it's just disappeared almost completely but nonetheless you know compared to the you know compared to nazi germany say you know he's he's frankly a bit of a lightweight um then if you take uh China today. I mean, yes, I think that qualifies as a dictatorship. It seems to me, at least, uh, I don't know what what your view is on that. But, but again, it's not the full fledged madness of uh, you know where entire industries were punching out buttons of uh, of you know of of Chairman Mao and little badges to the extent that they you know they could no longer have an aircraft industry if they were to continue using up aluminium at the rate they did i mean something it seems like it's not so not so much fun being a dictator anymore what's what's changed do you think well the, the, it's it's obviously controversial i think there's two ways to go one is to say democracy is on the decline dictatorship is expanding the other one is to say mm, dictators no longer quite what they used to be. Where are the millions upon millions buried? Where are the pits with all the bodies? Um, so, first of all, I would say to come back to the very principle of distinguishing a democracy from a dictatorship is to do again with, with 
power. So is there separation of powers or, or not? Because every dictator will tell you, we have a democracy. If you grow up under Assad, you'll be taught that in Syria, you have the greatest democracy that could possibly exist. Right. Zhao Ziyang, the so-called reform in the 1980s, said that China had created the, the greatest uh, democracy since uh, since the birth of civilization. So <laughs> they all think they're democratic. They're not. They don't have your democracy. Your democracy is a fake democracy. Your separation of powers is a fake separation of powers. Everything is controlled by either the capitalists or the bourgeoisie, or in the case of Adolf Hitler, it's controlled by the Jews, the Jewish international finance. Uh, they are the ones who control all of this. So it's all fake. It's a sham democracy. But of course, it's not. But this, this distinction you must know. So when students get confused, I always say, look, it's really quite straightforward. You get on the plane, you fly to the country where you want to test the ground, so to speak, and um, you either shout something very loudly against the man in charge or the woman, as the case may be, or, or you, if you are a little bit shy, you try to find people who uh, are critical of the man or woman in charge. And if you can find them, then you're probably in a democracy. And if you can't find them, you're probably in a dictatorship. You can fly to Washington. Are there people critical of this president or the preceding one? I would say in the case of the preceding one, difficult to find anyone who's anything positive <laughs> today. So definitely democracy. If you fly to, say, Pyongyang or Seoul, uh, or if you fly to, um, say, Beijing, Will you find a great many people who are happy to debate the defects of the man in charge on television or radio? I think you'll find precisely zero. So I think that should be quite clear. But on the other hand, what you are pointing at is very, very important. Um, so there is the case of both Turkey and Russia, which I think are very, very interesting. I mean, just imagine, in the case of Turkey a few years ago, the head of the opposition became mayor of Istanbul. So as somebody who works on the People's Republic of China, my first question is, what kind of dictator <laughs> allows an opposition party to exist? And then the man who runs the opposition to become mayor of your capital. <laughs> that certainly wouldn't happen on the Mao, and most certainly not on the Xi Jinping. There is no opposition party, never mind the capital being run uh, by an opponent. So um, it, it clearly is a, a little different that same with Putin. There is a Duma in Moscow, and opponents were elected to it. And yes, journalists get killed. And, and yes, it is, it is an autocracy. It is, a, it is an imperfect dictatorship with some foundations being established in the case of Russia and Turkey earlier on, in the case of Russia, obviously, after 1992, uh, very frail foundations, which Putin either cannot challenge or simply will not challenge. That's a very difficult one to, to debate. I'm not the specialist in that. But there are, there are elements of a separation of power. So that's one thing. But then even if you look at North Korea, Kim Jong-un, I call him Kim the Third. It's a dynasty, uh, or Xi Jinping, or other countries. Well, there is really just a. There's no such thing as an imperfect separate. It's just a plain, straightforward dictatorship. Says so in the constitution. They're proud of it. Nonetheless, these countries have changed too. So I think that is the great effect of the separation 
of powers and democracy, but has had very gradually over time a restraining effect on dictatorships themselves. They can try to ensconce themselves behind a great wall. They can create a firewall in the case of, of China. You try reading BBC News on, 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 on your iPhone once you land over there. Good luck with that. So they can create a firewall. They can try to isolate themselves. But, but ultimately, it's very difficult. It's very difficult for dictators to get away with what their predecessors managed to do. So it, it, the, the reality is that the thresholds of tolerance of what, what people can, will tolerate within dictatorships has changed tremendously. And I think we saw that most clearly roughly a year ago, October 2022, when people in Shanghai and elsewhere were too afraid to speak out yet thoroughly fed up with the regime and held blank pieces of paper, blank pieces of paper, saying nothing, no slogan, no nothing. And that movement was enough to force the party to abandon its policy of locking people up for months on end without much help. And that policy was reversed from one day to the next. So in other words, um, democracy outside a dictatorship has increasingly over the decades had a restraining and affecting what dictators can get away with. So, yes, I would agree with you. The dictators of today are no longer what they used to be. Okay, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much, Frank Dakota. You're welcome. Well, that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you have the time, then a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever it is, that would be fantastic. Uh, and generally, if you, if you have any feedback at all, do feel free to drop me uh, a line. My email is hog.russell at gmail.com. And that's two Gs, two Ss and two Ls. Okay, that's it. I really hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll be listening again next time. So bye for now. Thank you.